All right. Let's open up back up to Exodus 32. I thought about going someplace else, and I talked myself out of it. Uh, because I've been sitting in here in Exodus 32 for quite a while now. And there were two things that really, really uh, weighed on me and that are very obvious in the text. And we're going to look at the second one tonight. So let's just re read it. I'll read it for us. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off all the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a, a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Just completely made that up. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They just had a big college bash, okay, in celebration of this idol. So they literally requested, and remember, I actually enjoyed going through that whole uh, lead up from Exodus 7 all the way up to, up to 20, where we started through the end of 19. I mean, it just they had these amazing interventions of God along the way that some people literally saw, and again, the nation of Israel is big at this time. Some people literally saw these things happen, but everybody knew that these things had happened, okay? Amazing things that have never happened in the history of humanity, or at least haven't been recorded. They got to experience them. And yet, when they were put in a position where they had to wait for God, they wound up taking matters into their own hands and created a new God and just, like, made the whole story up. They just changed it. They just changed history. And they made a God that they could see. We talked about that yesterday, why they would do it. They, they fashioned an image that they understood, made an animal. One, they could derive some, some sort of mental energy or satisfaction from. You know, they could put their energies on this thing that they could see, whatever good that was going to do. And they could celebrate it. They, it says they ate and they drank. They caroused. They, they, it was... Like I said uh, the other day, it was not, um, they were having an orgy. Can I say that at Hume Lake? I mean, they were literally, it was like it was like a sex party with food and drink. And if you look up that word play, it was more than just we're going to have a good time. So it got like nuts, okay, crazy. They wanted an idol in their own image so they could use it to satisfy their own desires. Like just total crash and burn, from where they had just been. So I think, again, it's so easy to judge them and we see these moments and, and you know, they, they get preached against and how could they do this? And I think about, when I was reading this, I was thinking about First uh, Kings chapter 18. Okay, you know what's going on in there? There's a bunch of chapters in there about Elijah. And there's this moment where Elijah and Ahab are going at it. I'll just give you this real quick. You know, Ahab is this evil, 
guy in Israel, and he does not like God's man, Elijah. And God brings about this, this um, drought that happens. Rain's not coming down. And so when rain doesn't come down, crops don't grow. Animals can't drink. So now there's a famine, okay? And Ahab knows that it's got something to do with Elijah and the God that he serves. And so they're going head to head. Like he, Ahab is very bothered by Elijah because he's meddling with things. And the people, the people are doing very similar to what was going on here in Exodus chapter 32. The people, some of them are still praying to God, um, but at the same time, they're praying to these Baal gods. They're, they're praying to this, these Egyptian gods that um, promise to bring, well, actually, Baal is the fertility god, okay, who promises to bring rain and to bring food and crops, okay? So some are praying to Jehovah, and some are praying to Baal. And so Ahab calls everybody together. You know this showdown that happens at the end of 1 Kings 18. And I'm going to read it here. In verse 20, it says, Ahab summoned all the Israelites and the prophets of Baal to meet at Mount Carmel. And Elijah went up to the people. As this is all going on, they're going to have this big, this big showdown at Mount Carmel. Elijah went up to the people and said... How much longer will it take you to make up your minds? If the Lord is God, then worship him. But if Baal is God, then worship him. But the people didn't say a word when Elijah confronted them with this. He's saying, you guys, make up your mind. Either worship God or worship Baal. You can't, you can't have a foot in both camps. The people didn't say anything. So let's just play this game with ourselves again. The text doesn't say why they didn't say anything. Just be human and put yourself in their shoes. Why maybe are they not saying anything? Say things out loud. Say. Okay, they might just want to go along with the crowd. They don't want to be wrong. What do you mean by that? They know they're wrong. Like they, they agree with Elijah, right? They agree with Elijah, and they don't want to be wrong. Okay. Could be. What else? I think I heard somebody else say something over there. Yeah, so here's another situation where you've got to stand out against the crowd. Um, and I think there's another kind of fear. I mean, again, as I think about this, I'm going to be quiet because I'm not sure. Where's the water? We've been praying to Jehovah God, the provider God, and no water is showing up. And, you know, the longer the Lord tarries, the longer he waits, the longer he makes us wait. Sometimes we talked about this yesterday. You start to lose faith. You start to lose hope. As each day goes by and the thing that you most need, for whatever reason, he, if he's out there, is not providing it. And this Baal God, like that's all it exists to do is provide rain and provide crops. Like that's, that's, what, it's, that's what it does. So where's the, where's the daggone water at? And maybe we just need to hedge our bets. I mean, there's just some human wisdom in that, isn't there? We'll pray to Jehovah God. And let's throw a few up to Baal. See what happens. At this point, nobody's given us anything. 
so we divide our hearts. And God's not having that. He's not having it. Isaiah 44. Did my phone go? I wanted to read this in a different version. Isaiah 44, verse 6. You might want to write this down. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'll read it to us. It's kind of a long passage, but I, I just I love the way this, this reads. And we're going to talk about idols why we turn to idols. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God who is like me. Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You're my witness. Is there any other God? No. There is no other rock, not one. So how foolish are those who manufacture idols? These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this. So they're all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? An idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with all these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim that they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they'll stand in terror and shame in the end. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all of his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint because he's just a man. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with a chisel and a plane, and he carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedar trees and selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yeah, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. And he says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and he makes his god a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says, you are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they can't even think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect, well, this is just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? That's an amazing run of passages, isn't it? Go ahead. New Living Translation. Isaiah 44. It's an amazing run of, pass of, of, of verses. Paul argued, though, that, that humans can't hardly help themselves in doing this. So again, we, we look at this and say, well, yeah, this is just stupid. Like, why in the world would the Israelites have done it? Why would anybody do this? Okay, I think that's totally a fair question even now for us to ask. Paul, though, 
he gave us a good reason why in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 1, you can flip over there. We're just going to do a quick survey of verses here to kind of set the stage for doing a deep dive into idolatry and thinking about what idolatry means in our own lives. In Romans chapter 1, pretty familiar passage, but good to be revisited now and again. Paul said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what actually can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have all been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they're, they're without excuse. Everybody knows that there's a God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So Paul says, look, I mean, you can mock people, or you can mock people that you see in the scriptures making idols for themselves, but it's actually common to all human beings who know that there's a God in their heart. They know there's a God in their heart, and yet they reject that God. They, they pretend that he doesn't exist, and they come up with something to fill that void that they've created by rejecting him out of the things that he's created, which is Again, like Isaiah says, that's just an insane thing to do. He's the one that created the stuff that you're making to worship, and you're denying the creator himself. Everybody does that. Um, <clears throat> and it has great consequences. Now, it gets a lot messier, though, when his own people who claim to know him do it. Let's think about this again this afternoon. I mean, it's one thing, and again, what Paul is saying in Romans is that everybody is condemned under that. But once you come out of that and you put your faith in Jesus, and you, or you're an Israelite, and you, you're having these encounters directly with the living God, it's like that's almost a whole other level of crazy to reject what we know, to reject what we've experienced, and turn back to things that are not going to be able to save us. Little g gods. I wrote to myself earlier that when it comes to talk of idols and idolatry, we can read a passage like this and excuse ourselves sometimes from the discussion, especially as Americans. I don't know if everybody in here is an American. I can't really see very well even to the back of the room, but I'm just going to pretend everybody in here is an American. And as Americans, we don't, we don't make little um, idols that we, we bow down to. Like, we don't do good at bowing down to anybody, Right? These colors don't run. Isn't that right? That'll be out here in a couple weeks. Right? We, 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 have, a, we have a pride about ourselves, and, and we, we, don't, we don't bow to things. Uh, and yet, and again, I'm saying this after 30 years of doing ministry and just paying attention to our culture. In some ways, Americans are maybe the most, some of the most susceptible people on earth to idolatry. Because we're so uncomfortable with talking about the spiritual side of life. We, we're, it's such an unfamiliar conversation. I'm not so much talking about church people, but I'm just saying in general, we, we don't feel comfortable talking about the spirit side of life. But we're going to come up with something 
to bow down to. We're going to come up with something to fill the void. We have to. And as it turns out, we do a great job. We live in a culture that specializes in idol making. I mean, we're wildly successful at developing things to fill our hearts. So a couple more verses that I just want to look at as we're thinking about this. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll ask, what exactly does this mean for us? You remember in Exodus 20, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, we read that yesterday. This is the very first thing he said. You're not, don't have any other gods before me. That's where we're going to start. Don't make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. we we'll talk about that in a second. Psalm 96 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So all over the place in the Bible are passages like Psalm 96 that are saying the stuff that people bow down to will never be able to save them. It's part of the creation. God made the heavens, the God that we're talking about. He's the one that made everything and set it all in motion. Jeremiah 2, this is God speaking. He says, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate declares the Lord. Get this. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, so that two, they could hew for themselves or cut out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And really this winds up being the story of the, the whole Bible. Really, maybe all of humanity for all, all time that the two things that we do as human beings is we reject God in all sorts of different kinds of ways, and then we turn around and we try to come up with a God that'll fill that void for ourselves. We reject the living water and try to create some other kind of water to satisfy ourselves. So what's, what's wrong with that? Here's what I, one of the things that I just want to put on the table for us. Because sometimes I think, even as I, even as I was reading it, sometimes there's this severity almost to, to these passages. And there is a severity. In fact, when you reject God, when you, would, you see what happened with Baal and, and Elijah, everybody wound up getting killed. A whole bunch of people did. Couldn't make up their mind about which way they wanted to go, so God made it up for them. If we finish the text in Exodus 32, a whole bunch of people wound up getting killed. That's severe, okay, for their choice to bow down to idols and, and, you know, disrespect God. But there's another way to read these passages, too, in the sense that the reason why God is, is um, angry about it is because he's jealous for us. He loves us and wants to be in relationship with us, right? That's kind of built into the whole story that we've signed up for, and so... Anytime that we turn away from this relationship, it, I mean, can I say it hurts him? 
it hurts the heart of God in some way that, that, we, that we reject him, that we turn away from him. And he's jealous for us. My friend Eric Thomas, who's teaching over in Ponderosa, who I hope is going to be here, by the way, Thursday night when we do Q&A. So we'll do Q&A with both Eric and I. If I, can, if I can, if he'll remember, I tell him every single day, and it's like it's brand new to him that I haven't brought it up yet. So we'll see if it sticks on Thursday. But he wrote a book, and I love this, just the title alone, called Godly Jealousy, A Theology of Intolerant Love. Godly jealousy, a theology of intolerant love. That when it comes to some things, their intolerance really is a good thing. Jealousy really is a good word. In fact, there's what Eric's doing in his book is he's saying, you know, we think jealousy and envy are the same thing. Envy is when you want something that doesn't belong to you. Jealousy is when you want something back that does belong to you. It's something that you're in, in rightful relationship with that's been taken away or been stolen or, or there's been a betrayal that's taken place. And, and God has a jealousy towards us who says, when you turn away from me, because this is how it always turns out, and you turn to other things, it always goes bad. Always. And I love you enough to keep begging you to not do that. Don't, don't turn away from me. Wait. Again, that's why these two things go together so well. Wait for me and let me show you my power. Let me use your life to show you my glory, right? And little, little miracles that we know can't be attributed to anything other than an intervention of God. He wants that to be our life. But when we keep dabbling with, you know, sometimes I'm really connected to you and sometimes I'm just going to turn away and try to do my own thing. And then, and then sometimes I'm going to be, and then I'm just going to, He's like, don't live like that. Why not just stay here? Why not just stay here? And I think I see this even humanly. It makes sense to me in my marriage. Um, I think I'm going I'm to go ahead and get away with trying to tell this story just real quick. Amy and I had, um, we've been in church ministry. We've been in ministry for a long time. So we've been in through a lot of crazy stuff with people, okay? So we had two friends, two couples, and one got divorced, okay? And the guy from this couple that got divorced started to pursue the woman in this other relationship, okay? Right under everybody's nose, right there in the church, right there in the midst of all of it. And we were saying, don't do this, dude. Don't do this. Stop this. Stop this. Stop this. So tons of warnings. Uh, he went ahead and kept pursuing them. They, this couple got divorced. These two got married, Okay, TMZ. And I was bothered by a whole bunch of that. One of the things that bothered me, though, was the response of this husband when this dude was pursuing his wife. Because I felt it was very, he was very passive. And I told Amy, remember, remember when I talked to you about this? I said, just so you know, <laughs> while we're in the midst of this live situation... Let's see what we can apply to our lives, just so you know. If anybody ever comes and tries to come after you and pursue you the way he was pursuing her, I'll, I'll go medieval. <laughs> and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying I will kill him, because I don't, and I'm serious, I thought about this. Even in trying to give advice to, to this dude, again, we were in the middle of this. 
I'm not saying I would kill him because I don't believe that I can do that before the Lord and I don't want to go to prison. But I will haunt you because you're my wife. I will make his life miserable. Okay, and she knows I will do it too because I have really pro- I have problems letting things go. <laughs> I'm jealous. I adore her. I adore her. If somebody came and tried to do that, I would want to fight for her. I, I would want to try to woo her. And then again, she's going along with it. I want to bring her back. No, don't. Don't do this. Don't do this. What can we do? And that's the heart of God throughout the scriptures. Again, the, the, the creator of the heavens, it doesn't even make any sense that he would keep coming after us like that. I don't, I don't understand it, to be honest with you, but that's, that's the testimony. He's jealous for us. And it's why he says, don't, don't, don't mess around with the idols. So I got to ask myself, what am I? This is the thing I want you to think about. If you don't, and there's a lot of words flying around here and verses and everything. What am I susceptible to when it comes to idolatry? What, what part of my life can easily turn idolatrous? What do we mean by idolatry? Okay, let's, as we're coming down maybe towards the airport here, what is idolatry? What do we mean when we keep throwing this word around? Idolatry is an excessive or blind adoration, reverence, or devotion to people, things, or ideas. Okay? It's an excessive or blind adoration, reverence, or devotion to people, things, or ideas. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love how he described an idol. He's an old-time preacher. He said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. So think about that. Anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that's central in my life, anything that seems to me essential or central in my life, I'm sorry, anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves, rouses, and attracts too much of my time, attention, energy, and money. It's something that takes the place of God. And it consumes us, consumes our mind, consumes our attention. We feel like if this was taken away, I don't know how I'd survive. I'll skip over a couple of things that's here. One of the problems with doing this is that we sacrifice our awareness of, the, of his presence on the altar of whatever this thing is that consumes us. What do I mean by that? When, when we start to pay so much attention to some aspect of our life, what that inevitably does is it leaves no room for our conscientiousness of God. Like that's when you know that you're, you're dabbling with something that may have become an idol to you. When your job, when your sport, when your money, your kids, your ministry, your desire to be liked your pursuit of relationships. Any of these things can become so consuming to us that we actually don't have any ability even to be conscientious towards God anymore. Like that's when you know things are starting to get maybe weird. With all, and oh, by the way, all those things are good things, aren't they? Those aren't, none of those are bad things until they become idols, until they start to take on the place of God in our life. 
Tim Keller, y'all know Tim Keller. He just died, actually, a couple weeks ago, I think it was. And one of the things that I'm glad the Lord allowed him to leave behind for us is his work on idolatry and idols of the heart. Because he was really the first one that I ever heard articulate really what we're talking about right now, that when we think about an idol, it's not something that you carve with stone and put up on the mantle, but it's all the stuff that we do in our life every day that can wind up taking the place of God as far as a priority for us. And, and so he said, he said, why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is just because we're weak and sinful, of course. But the specific answer is that there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that's more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and maybe even to self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols that live inside of our hearts. And he said that, I think, back in the late 90s. And, and then he made this assessment. Maybe you could look this up again. I don't, we don't have time to do all this right now. But maybe look up Tim Keller, Idols of the Heart. And he made an assessment. And I'll read a couple of them. This is a way to check yourself. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if, number one, I have power and influence over others. So power has become idolatrous for you. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by a particular person. That's approval idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Well, the idol of comfort may have become a problem for you. And he goes on down the list. He's got 20 of them here to the point where it's actually a little bit exhausting where you realize that really every aspect of our life can, be, can turn into an idol. I, <clears throat> I work with college students all the time, college athletes actually. And I mean, we talk about this all the time. What the difference between um, glorifying God through sports versus having sport become an idol? How, how can you tell the difference? And, you know, athletes, are, they're committed, um, they're talented, they're driven by performance, right? I mean, the whole, that's just built into sports. You have to perform well. You have to kind of go up the ladder. Ultimately, you're going for a trophy. So you discipline your body, your mind, everything about your schedule. That sounds like something that could turn into an idol really easy, doesn't it? And it does. And so our whole work centers around, and, and I really had to work on myself first as, as an athlete 30-some years ago to recognize that there's this, this, this subtle line that can easily be crossed where this good thing that God has given me can easily so consume my life that God gets left out, and it becomes my God. So what does that look like for you? What does that mean for you? As you think about different categories, again, whatever season you're in, there's such a bizarre mix of people in here again tonight, right? All across the spectrum, age-wise, and married, single, and from all over the place. As you think in through your own life, what categories are you susceptible to letting take over your life to such an extent that they become an idol? 
How should we then live? What do we do when we see that there's idols in our life? I'll say these things and then we'll stop. You may want to write these down or at least just kind of storm away in your head. How do you step into this and do something about it? One, I say just pay attention to your own soul. Maybe this is a total, maybe you teach on this or you hear this all the time in your church. Maybe this was a brand new idea, idols of the heart. Pay attention to your own soul and start to become conscious of what are the things that I can, can easily let take over my life in the place of God. What are, what are you vulnerable to? And two, repent. When you see those things, that should be, you know, sometimes people say they don't know what they need to repent for. I bet if you start thinking, you start thinking along these lines of what is it that I let sometimes crowd God out, those things can always be repented for, which just means to turn away from it and to release it, to let it go, to at least mentally say, I don't want this thing to be in the place of God anymore. And then three, then, to ask God to fill that space back up. God, I see what sport has become in my life or whatever you're going to fill in the blank with. Would you come in and fill, fill that space up, that I'm, the needs that I'm trying to get met through this thing, the, the, the desires that I'm seeking to get met through this thing? Would you come in and become real to me and take the place of those things? Four, I said to get a, accountability, to start having these kinds of conversations with friends and people that are in your church. Again, I know we're not very connected, and that's a, that's what, this is one of the reasons that's a real problem. It's just not, maybe not having people to have these kinds of conversations with. But there's something about being able, and I, I do this with guy friends of mine, where we, we talk openly about things that we're feeling uh, that are starting to consume our life or that we're in danger of letting become something more than they should be. And you know how that works. There's something about speaking those things out to somebody else that diffuses its power. Like that's the first step to diffusing its power. Well, the second step, the first step is to invite God into it. But then to talk it out with friends. And then finally, ask God to reprioritize your heart. To still be able to enjoy good things, but the, for those things to stay second. I feel like I pray that regularly um, as I'm going through my life. God, would, would you just keep As I invite you to keep being first place, would you help reprioritize my heart? Help me to trust you. Help me to believe that you actually are the one that can satisfy the needs that I'm trying to get met in other ways. So that was a lot. What I I hope would happen tonight, I was thinking thinking about all these different things. What I hope will happen is that you would just at least start thinking about it for yourself if you haven't already done that? Is there something that's going on in your heart or your mind that God is having to compete with? In fact, Tim Keller said that the, the, great, the great tragedy is not, or the great fear is not that we would become atheists. The great fear is that we'd ask God to compete with idols in our heart, that we'd ask him to compete with those things over the course of our life. That's what we should be afraid of. Will somebody pray for us?